Kia ora and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. My name's Pip Adam and in this episode we have a very special recording which was made possible um, with exceptional thanks to um, Taipuna Matauranga or Aotearoa, the National Library of New Zealand. Um, it is a recording of an event called Personal Poetry, How Much Information is Too Much, which um, was on on the 16th of February in 2018, if you're listening from the future. Um, it was organised by the incredible Wellington poet Hannah Metner, and um, it was to run in conjunction with an amazing um, exhibition that's happening there until the 24th of um, March, um, which is called The Next Word, um, Contemporary um, New Zealand Poetry. So I would, if you're in Wellington and you get a chance, I would highly recommend going and seeing that exhibition. It's up in the um, Turnbull Gallery um, and it's just, yeah, it's superb. It's really superb. So um, yeah, I was lucky enough to be invited to this event and um, was lucky enough um, to be gifted this recording, which we're about to play. So again, thank you so much to National Library and the staff there. Um, and so, who was there? So, Hera Lindsay's bird was there. Um, Freya, <laughs> that almost sounded like I said Hera Lindsay's bird. I'm sure it's not the first time. Anyway, Hera Lindsay's bird was not there. Hera Lindsay bird was there. Um, you will know Hera most likely. Um, her debut self-titled book of verse was published in 2016 to immediate and vast acclaim and won Best First Book of Poetry at the 2017 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. Her poems have been referred to as nihilistic, provocative, offensive, fearless and flamboyant. Naturally, much of the discussion has centred around her free disclosure around sex. She said, I think people more than ever now are interested in hearing other people talk about talk really candidly about their lives. Um, she has a new chat book out, um, Pamper Me to Hell and Back, um, and that's available since February this year. I was also there with um, Freya Daly Sadgrove, um, who, yeah, one of my favourite writers at the moment in Wellington, oh, has been for a long time. Anyway, Freya is a writer and performer in Wellington. She is co-founder of punk band come performance collective The Great Danger. Um, her, poems have been, her poems have been described as eclectic and lively, dealing honestly with chaotic relationships and mental health. Um, she also works at the children's bookshop. Um, yeah, Freya is amazing. The other writer who was there is Tay Tibble. Tay's a Wellington poet. Um, Tay Fano uh, Apanui and Ngati Puro. Um, she was awarded the 2017 Adam Prize for her work in a fish tank filled with pink light, a collection which explores the lives of four generations of Māori women, written as part of her 2017 Master of Arts at the IIML. Um, her writing has been called powerful, restrained but unafraid. Um, yeah, w I just had the best night. Um, yeah, these are three outstanding writers and um, to sort of have this discussion about revealing poetry or, um, yeah, poetry that um, sort of is generous in the extent to which it gives information about the writer. So yeah, I really hope you enjoy this and thanks again to National Library and thanks again to Hannah Metner. So tonight um, we feel very grateful, I feel very grateful to have these three amazing writers here tonight. We have Freya who is just yeah, she is an amazing writer 
She also in makes incredible theatre as well, and is a fantastic actor as well as everything else. You're just, you're amazing. You're welcome. Um, next to Freya we have Hera, Lindsay Bird, um, who again is a magnificent writer. Um, yeah, just marvellous. Um, and also um, an incredibly astute reader. Um, one of the things I love about Hera is that um, she continues to write about books that she enjoys and yeah, she's just an amazing reader. So yay Hera. And then we have Tay at the end, Tay Tibble, <gasps> magnificent poet as well. I'm just, yeah, so grateful to be surrounded by such amazing people. And um, Tay, um, yeah, is an amazing poet and incredible writer and yeah, another really interesting person to talk to about poetry and writing. So yeah, maybe if we start off by saying thank you for coming and give all these three wonderful people a clap. Okay, so tonight what we're going to be talking about is this idea of TMI, revealing writing, um, writing that reveals, um, um, we're going to throw around the word, the word confessional writing and see where that lands. And, um, but the really interesting thing about this is that it all started off when Hannah um, gave me an um, email and sort of talked about some of the conversations that have been had at um, Hera's TMI um, writing workshop, which I think Freya was at as well. Hera, do you want to start off by just talking a little bit about the, I don't know, the co-papa of that workshop or, you know, what you hope, you know, the, like, yeah, tell us about that. Um, okay, so this was last year, I, I kind of was, like, um, moving back to Wellington after having, like, one of those life-changing breakups where you're like, I'm going to, uh, you know, do, <laughs> I'm going to do something. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I'm going to do it. And I, um, I kind of really missed being in writing workshops, but um, I've, I've already spent like so much money <laughs> just going through all of the endless courses and stuff, and I kind of thought um, I, I wanted to do a course where people could come and they wouldn't have to pay any money and they wouldn't have to go into to any kind of student debt to, to be involved in a kind of a community who was interested in writing. Um, and I also wanted, there were a couple of things I wanted to... Um, having a workshop that you can't really have at a university as well. Like, I wanted us to be able to drink, <laughs> and I wanted us to be able to um, kind of, I don't know, just talk, be able to talk really openly about our personal lives. You know, it was kind of like part, partly a therapy group as well, I think. Um, and there were just some conditions that, um, you know, being in a writing workshop at university, um, that, that just... I kind of inevitable, but uh, um, I didn't. I didn't want to deal with like. There's always, you know, there's always that one person in your writing class who kind of says like horrendous things, but no one can. You can't really have an argument with them because they're they're being paid to be there. So I was like, well, if I choose all of the people that I want, <laughs> that won't happen. Um, so yeah, we had to, we had. To, it was actually like a really minimal amount of teaching. Like all I had to do was basically bring like. 12 kind of amazing people into a room and they, they basically just taught themselves and all I had to do was like prepare readings for people to talk about and it was just, the stuff that people produced was just so cool and amazing and I still go back and read it all the time. And like, I, I wonder, um, like one of the things that um, Hannah sort of talked about that course was just a little bit about this, this sort of the ethics of um, 
too much information and also talked about perhaps this idea of revealing writing. And she said that there were some really interesting conversations that took part around that stuff. Can you remember any of those, Freya? Did any of them leap off the top of your mind? Uh, uh, <laughs> um, just, just that we talked about if it's okay to write about other people. Um, we talked a little bit about like if it's okay to write about other people's stories, but also other people being in your lives and therefore being part of your personal stories and then um, that being a little bit more of a, a grey area as to whether you like needed to care that much <laughs> and, and, and it turns out you, you do. <laughs> leap in right there and ask if you would be willing to read us a poem maybe. I thought yep. it'd be nice to get some reading in the room because we're talking about abstract ideas like you know like revealing writing and professional writing and would you be willing to read a poem? Yes. Do you want to read it from sitting or do you want to read it from standing? Probably from sitting. Oh, sounds good. But I might just go to <laughs> the Yeah, yourself a good 
attention for uh, the earthquake and the fine china. <laughs> Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, and and also I guess the the other one Tina is quite um, is like I don't write a lot of text and poems. So I get sexy if I get like um, but it's kind of like all real all real mixed up with my Perspective, mental state. Um, so yeah, I guess I thought. I guess I think because um, I have such trouble talking about uh, my mental illness um, in real life. So I, I find it quite freeing to do that in my poems sometimes. So yeah. Thank you. <laughs> that was an awesome answer. Hey, were you good at school? Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> I didn't get hit girl, but I wanted it really badly. <laughs> you just got hit girl of the IIML, though. Yeah, That's basically yeah. the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, in Freya's poem, um, we talked a little bit when we met the other night about this word I, you know, and in Freya's poem, you know, there's the word I, and a lot of your po poetry, you use the word I. And I just wonder... What do you think is the relationship between the word I and, you know, you as the author? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I guess most of the time it's probably just me, but like a lot of the time I pretend that it's not, or um, I've heard some people talk about it being like a, like one facet of yourself, like one side of yourself, um, or taking you think it's true, but um, usually when I'm taking an I in the poem, I'm taking just like the position mm. and just running with it. Yeah, I really like that idea. One of the questions that was in the poster for this event is, I'm just going to read it because I can't remember it, um, why is poetry about the real details of women's writing seen as outrageous? And I just wondered, like, Kira, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, I think, I think one thing is that often a lot of the time when people criticise something for being kind of too personal or a bit TMI or something, that's not actually the real criticism. I think that mostly, I think that's like an easy thing to pick on, but I think that when people say that about your writing, that's not actually the problem with writing, because they'll read, you know, seven books of Nazgad, and that's fine. And, and really what they're saying is they don't like the voice or the style or something, so I think it's just kind of like a lazy catch-all for, um, yeah, people not having to explain deeper why they don't like something, although I'm sure that there are people who kind of find it um, a bit affronting to kind of hear so many personal details about people's lives, but I think it is a bit of a double standard as well, because if you, you know, um, um, you know, no one, or maybe, I don't know, maybe someone has called Proust a narcissist, but you know, like, just because you have the word tampons in a poem doesn't, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand why that's kind of more self-involved than... Plus, I like self-involved writing, you know. I, <laughs> I, think, it's, I think it's funny to, to read work that's um, has someone who's really been, spent a lot of time thinking really deeply about their life, and I actually think it's an act of generosity to kind of share that with people. Like, when I read people like Frank O'Hara or Chelsea Minnis or people who are really open about their lives, I just think I'm so happy that they kind of put themselves out there in that way, because that's always been my favourite part of reading, is like hearing those really intimate details about about people's lives. 
Yeah, this idea, Tay, I think that was something that I sort of sent to all of you, like this idea that um, some of these questions around what's too much and what's not enough seems to be very audience focused. And I just wonder, when you're writing, are you thinking about an audience? Or, yeah, like, I mean, is it, is it a personal act that somehow becomes public? Or, like, how do you think that happens? Can you say it again? Um, yeah, I'm not saying it properly, so um, yeah, I'll try and rephrase it. When you're writing, are you thinking um, this poem will be read by these people, or are you writing thinking I'm writing a poem and yeah, like not thinking about that? Um, I want to say when I'm writing a poem, I'm just trying to. I mean, most of the time when I'm writing a poem, I'm just trying to write the poem, like that's enough um, in itself. But. Um, I don't want to say this, but I, I do think about an audience reading it. And I think that act of thinking about an audience, at least for my writing, has helped improve it. Um, yeah. Because when you think about other people reading it, I've just found that I can be more generous to my readers. <laughs> yeah. And like Freya, there's often times where you are engaged with an actual real life, I just whipped out the articulator. Um, <laughs> but you know, like, excuse me, do this one. But you know, like with theatre and stuff like that, the audience is often right there, isn't it? Like, so when you're writing, it's always, it's always there. Really? <laughs> Exciting, thanks, theatre. Um, but um, is there like is the is there is the art of writing poetry different from when you're thinking about theatre as far as how much information you're giving away or anything like that? Yeah, definitely, writing it is super different, but um, but performing it. Like reading poetry, I am often doing similar things to what I'm doing when I'm performing, especially because um, I sometimes, like, I have done, so, it's kind of embarrassing, but I have done improv theater. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, uh, there's this whole thing with doing readings that you kind of, or I kind of uh, try and try and talk in between my poems sometimes too much, um, and and it kind of becomes part of the poems in a way that yeah is not there when they're just on the page, which is sometimes good and sometimes a fucking disaster. Um, not not necessarily like in terms of people not liking it, but in terms of like, uh, it's, there's just, I can't craft as much um, in the moment, obviously, like, and you can't like, um, sort out people's, you, you can kind of anticipate people's responses a bit when you're writing, and you can be like, mm, no, I want to steer away from being a huge asshole, but, um, uh, if you're if you're re if you're performing a poem that has like angry feelings or hurt feelings, sometimes you can perform it in an assholey way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I do. It's kind of not really an answer to the question it's, that you asked. It's kind of a great answer, though, isn't it? I thought it was I thought it was a real cool answer. Um, with this idea of steering away, I'm quite interested in that idea, and I was just wondering, here, 
this, there seems to be this tension in, in poetry between, um, I'm just thinking like, I don't write poetry, so I don't know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> just this idea that maybe metaphor, humour, line break, white space, that kind of stuff can often be used maybe to do the things that, some of the things that Freya's talking about, to sort of affect how something's read a little bit, and maybe to control how much information is given out, how much personal stuff is revealed. I, am I incredibly wrong, or, yeah. Do you, think, do you think there is any, do you think that's part of, like with a revealing poem or a confessional poem or something like that, the idea that um, metaphor can sort of steer away from it a little bit, or do you think that steers into it maybe, like, you know, a car driving into an expedient? I don't know. Well, like, like to me, um, when, like, I love humour and poetry and I love weird punctuation and I like kind of weird um, spaces and things, and I actually think that that's, to me, that's like a more natural way to write because it's, it's kind of the way that I think a lot of us think and it's a, a way that a lot of us talk to our friends and... We, we end in weird ellipses and we put like seven question marks at the end of all of our emails and, um, you know, we kind of tell bawdy jokes. So then to go and kind of write really like pristine Anne Carson-y poetry just kind of feels, like I love Anne Carson, but like for, to, for me to write that, like that would feel disingenuous in a way. So I, like I just feel like I can't help putting that stuff in. Is that, is that what you meant? That's I don't really know if I understood your question. That's exactly what I mean, and I think I was on exactly the wrong path, because I guess what I saw as kind of a way of sort of um, restraining information output, like a way of not being more revealing, it sounds like it's actually more revealing, you know, like to actually speak in our own voice and to speak, you know, that's, that's another way of being more revealing. Yeah, I think about tonal honesty in poems a lot, because I think that, like, you can be... Um, literally honest, you can say the things that have been happening in your life, but I also think a lot of um, the poetry that exists in the world doesn't feel tonally honest to me, and I don't know, I don't really know how to explain that other than just saying that, but, but um, yeah, like, uh, like to me one of the big challenges has been like learning how to write um, poems that are both kind of honest and um, but while still being like silly and um, and kind of a bit sappy and, and I don't know, just all of that other stuff in there, like the stuff of life. The stuff of life. <laughs> <laughs> just that. <laughs> hey, Tay, I just used a word that I think I was going to ask you about. Uh, um, this idea of confessional, you know, like um, I feel, because um, I'm like ancient, um, confessional used to be a word that someone would use as a, it wasn't a compliment. Um, you know, I remember being told that some of my writing is a bit confessional, you know, and I just wonder, do you see any place for that word in what you're writing? Like, do you see any place for it, or is it just an outdated way of talking about it, or is there any relation to that word to your work? Um, I used to quite worry about it. Because I people used to say that about my work too, and I'd be like, I don't think that. <laughs> I don't think you're being nice to me. <laughs> but um, no, I I kind of like it. I don't mind it so much. Um, but they might be personal interest in the same way that I like like just gossip and people doing <laughs> terrible things <laughs> and talking about it. So um. 
Sorry, I forgot, I forgot the, no, the way you're asking yeah, the question. No, I think but that's really great. What yeah. What were you going to say? Um, <laughs> I was going to say I really like that idea of gossip. Like I think, yeah. you know, like when I grew up, we didn't have a lot of books in the house, but boy, did we gossip. You know, like yeah. and that, they were the stories that we told. You know, I remember my grandmother peering out the kitchen window kind of saying, there's some mean spooks outside the neighbor's house. You know, and like I just think that, you know, this idea of, you know, that I think we're always telling stories in that way. Yeah. Can I, I ask you too as well about that word confessional? Oh, tell me about it. Um, but uh, I have two, I have two like, relation, like, parts of my relationship with that word. And the first one was um, like high school English, do, studying Sylvia Plath. Um, and, um, and I loved my English teacher very much. <coughs> and that's just <laughs> immaterial. It's not part of my story. It's funny for to know that. Um, but... But, like, I loved studying Sylvia Plath. It was like, she, she did, like, her and Caroline Duffy. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> poetry is cool. Um, instead of boring. Um, which I, no, I don't think I ever thought poetry was boring, but I thought that a lot of poetry was, like, I just didn't want to go near it for a bit. But, yeah, yeah. I was like, confessional is cool because we referred to it as confessional all the time in our essays. Um, <laughs> but then the other thing is that um, I think I was like, like a late teen and I was went to an audition for a play and it was a big group audition and the guy who was running it, who was like, had really greasy hair and a big nose and I had a huge, got a huge crush on him. Um, he was like, right at the end of the thing, he was like, could you just like, just confess something? Um, to like, <laughs> just ask the whole group, go around and confess something. And I was like, still a loser back then. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't confess anything good. I said something like dumb about my socks. And I was so <laughs> fucking embarrassed because I went first because I was so eager because I had a big crush on him. And I was like, oh, I'll say this, it'd be really funny. Um, and then everyone, Everyone was like, ugh. Um, they were all older than me too, and they were like, ugh, that teenager. What a loser. Um, and then I was like, and then it just like stayed with me for so long that I had been incapable of saying anything like of any fucking depth or anything. Um, I just <coughs> wanted to be funny instead of being honest. And so then I was like, I must, I must tell everyone everything. <laughs> um, from then on, I've just been slowly trying to like reveal more of me and more until there's nothing left. <laughs> so I like the word confessional. Yeah. I don't hear it very much anymore, I guess, but I think it's cute. Yeah. Do you think, Hira, do you think it's got any, what it, yeah, just any opinions on it? Um, I think the funniest thing about the word confessional is the implied reluctance. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> like you've, yeah. got, you've got all of these people that you call confessional poets and they've put out like eight books of poetry all about their divorces <laughs> and it's like, you know, no one is twisting this person's arm to get them to say, yeah. to get them to, you know, like you don't have to ask me twice to get me to tell you about like really intimate details of my personal life. But I know that's not really the point. Words change their meaning. And 
Um, yeah, yeah, I don't hear it very much anymore either. I think it's kind of a, it feels like a bit of an American thing now. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. yeah. I guess the reason I asked is there was a fantastic podcast with um, um, Chris Krause and Maggie Nelson. And they sort of re, I just felt like that word had kind of been rehabilitated around them, which was really, I don't know, I found that quite interesting. Um, Hera, will you read us a poem? A poem? Yes. Um, I'm going to read, this one's slightly longer, but there's only one of them, so don't worry. Uh, it's called Pyramid Scheme. The other day I was thinking about the term Pyramid Scheme and why they called it Pyramid Scheme and not Triangle Scheme. I asked you what you thought. You thought it added a certain gravitas and linked the idea of economic prosperity with some of history's greatest architectural achievements, unconsciously suggesting a silent wealth of gold and heat. A triangle is two-dimensional, and therefore a less striking mental image than the idea of a third dimension of financial fraud, which is how many dimensions of financial fraud the term pyramid scheme suggests. But I had to pause for a second at the financial fraud part, because it occurred to me I didn't know what pyramid schemes really were. I knew they had to do with people getting money from nothing. Like, the person at the top of the pyramid scheme, or more accurately, triangle scheme, acquires a number of investors and takes their money, and then pays their first lot of investors with the money from another bunch of investors, and so on and so forth, all the way to the bottom of the triangle or pyramid face, which is a kind of stupid thing that happens if you keep your money in a pyramid and not a bank account. <laughs> Although, if you ask me, banks are the real pyramid schemes after all. Always love the real pyramid scheme. I can't remember. Maybe it's better to keep your money in a pyramid than a bank, and I should shop around and compare the interest rates on different pyramids. Maybe I should open up a savings pyramid with a whole bunch of trapdoors and malarias to keep the financial anthropologists, <laughs> I mean bankers, out. My emeralds cooling under the ground like beautiful woman's eyes. <laughs> I think this was supposed to be a metaphor for something, but I can't remember where I was going with it, and now it's been swept away by the winds of whatever. But knowing me, it was probably love. That great dark blue sex hope that keeps coming true. That cartoon black castle with a single bird flying over it. I don't know where this poem ends, how far below the sand, but it's still an early evening and you and I are a little drunk. You answer the phone. You pour me a drink. I know you hate the domestic and poetry, but you should have thought of that before you invited me to move in with you. <laughs> I used to think arguments were the same as honesty. I used to think screaming was the same as passion. I used to think pain was meaningful. I no longer think pain is meaningful. I never learned anything good from being unhappy. I never learned anything good from being happy either. The way I feel about you has nothing to do with learning. It has nothing to do with anything. But I feel it down in the corners of my sarcophagus. I feel it in my sleep. Even when I'm not thinking about you, you are still pouring through my blood like fire through an abandoned hospital ward. These coins are getting heavy on my eyes. It has been a great honor and privilege to love you. It has been a great honor and privilege to eat cold pizza on your steps at dawn. Love is so stupid. It's like punching the sun and having a million gold coins rain down on you, which you don't even have to pay tax on because sun money is free money. And I'm pretty sure there are no laws about that, but I would pay tax because I believe that hospitals and education and the art should be publicly funded, even this poem. When I look at you, my eyes are two identical neighborhood houses on fire. When I look at you, my eyes bulge out of my skull like a dog in a cartoon. When I am with you, an enormous silence descends on me, and I feel like I am sinking into the deepest part of my life. 
We walked down the street with the grass blowing back and forth. I have never been so happy. Yeah, it's a funny one, because I, in a way, if you write a love poem to someone and it's a public poem, it's still, it's kind of a little bit impersonal in a way, because it's obviously a performative thing to do. Um, uh, my analogy for it is it's like writing a really sexy message on the back of a postcard to someone you love, hoping that the postman will read it and get turned on. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's... It's kind of, I feel like I kind of get off quite lightly because in all of these discussions we have about TMI and sharing personal information, it's often like people writing memoirs about their really troubled families and I get to write love poems about people and people are actually, um, it's a lot easier to get permission from people to share something nice about them than it is to, you know, tell people about how much you hate your mother. I love my mother, by the way. That's, this is, that was not an app. <laughs> She'll be listening to this. Um, but yeah, so it's the idea of like involving other people in your work is a little bit easier if you write really nice things about them. <laughs> there was something that you said to me this afternoon which just kind of blew my mind apart, which I had never occurred to me before, is this idea that all... I, think, I don't think you said love poems, but I think you said revealing poems are time-bound. Mm -hmm. You know, like, often they're written in one mood, and then by the time they're sort of for everybody else, that has sort of shifted. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yep. Um, yeah. I guess I, uh, I do a lot of writing, like, initially to kind of deal with shit, um, like, like to therapize myself, which is, um, which is like, I don't know, not everyone digs that, I guess, but, um, but that means that I get to do that, and sometimes that involves writing about a you, or writing at a you who I'm angry at, or upset by, or who I love, um, uh, and then, and then I get to have done all that, like, like in personal growth, or, um, or just like processing what has happened in that way. And then, after that, there will be another phase of like making it neater and editing it. Um, and then, and then. By the time it's ready to be read to people or to be published or whatever, um, that's quite in the past for me. But if that person, the you, because they're all fucking real people, mm -hmm. um, or versions of them in the past, uh, has to then see that then, then it's like, 
um, it's like it's a whole, it's like reliving it. It's like they didn't get to do the grow the, the growing past it, growing through it that I did. Um, and then also the whole audience, um, also if they happen to know who the you is, or if they have a sense of who it might be, or, or they, they know who I am, then they'll, they read that as the present me or the present you, and they'll make judgments on me or on the you based on that, which can be, like it's just, it's not right. Like all of my, um, I think about the thing of like, if the I in the poem is me, I think about that question and I'm like, yeah, it's totally me. But it's also like, me is a lot of, just a sequence of different people changing slightly uh, through time. Um, and if people sometimes engage with my poems, then they'll, they'll think it's me now. Yeah, I think that's huge. Like, I think that's absolutely, yeah, it just, like I say, it just blew my mind when you said it, because it, 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 it was something that had never occurred to me before, you know, and I remember after, you know, like, I've, I've, um, I've written some things about, a f yeah, I hide behind fiction, I'm just like, it's fiction, <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, often I'll think, you know, like, the other, often the other person doesn't get the platform to speak back, yeah. you know, and I think that, you know, that messes with me a little bit. Tay, do you have any opinions about this? Like, you know, there are often people that, like I'm just thinking about um, um, your year nine um, boyfriend. Uh, you know, like I just, I'd love you to read that poem actually, but do you have any thoughts about, like I mean, can any, I guess one of the interesting things is if we start censoring ourselves at that first level, we're kind of stuffed anyway. But do you have any ideas about how- Writing about other people. Yeah, writing about other people, yeah. Um, in, well, in my experience, the people that, the, the people I have in my life to write about, I just know wouldn't mind, because <laughs> they're either A, narcissists, and will be upset if I don't write about them, and they've like entered this relationship with me knowing that I'm a writer and want me to write about them, or, um, or the other people I write about is like my family, and especially my mother and my grandmothers, and um, I think I was thinking about this earlier. I think it might be a cultural thing because I'm Māori. And I don't feel like my identity is separate from theirs whatsoever. Like, my identity is very tied up with my mother's identity and my grandmother's identity, so on and so on. So I just feel like I, I don't, maybe, maybe I'm just being <laughs> like wrongfully entitled, but it feels right for me to write about them. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Would you read us some poems? Yeah, I'll read though I am. About my year nine boyfriend, yeah. Thank you. Sorry, it's all about me. Um, <laughs> this poem is called Scabbing. Year nine. Ex-boyfriend makes $50 scabbing school kids for a dollar during a single lunchtime. Upon hearing this news, I instantly regret breaking up with him via my best friend's text only a few months earlier. I broke up with him because I was 12, but also because I was in love with somebody else and I had only agreed to go out with him in the first place because my best friend was dating his best friend at the time. And being the Libra that I am, I made the diplomatic decision to date him to be nice. However, his best friend cheated on my best friend at camp with a girl who at age 13 had become the youngest ever bogan beauty queen of the greater Wellington region. <coughs> 
sowing a sense, who could blame him. But after that, dating his friend became tricky, a matter of playground custody, and I had no access to any legal advice. I didn't think twice when I gave my OK Mafia nod to my number two who texted. She's got no time for you, sorry. She really wants to focus on her career right now. Bye. <laughs> my best friend would also like to point out that he cried. I cried too, as soon as I knew that that boy was a hustler, my kind of man, a go-getter, who knew how to stack that shiny $1 gold paper. And to make matters worse, he's a proper rugby player now. <laughs> I fantasise about being his housewife. I imagine the magazine interviews where he says things like, I've had a crush on this girl since I was 12 years old. And I imagine that he takes me to dinners and balls and all his friends' wives become prejudiced with jealousy, having had to work so hard in gyms and DMs and studying on Instagram, but mine is so in love with me that I don't even have to try. Think Zoe Kravitz meets indigenous demigoddess, because I've been his ride or die Bonnie and Clyde kind of bitch since I was 12 years old. And on a talk show, the host pulls up old, embarrassing photos of the former we never went to together. He laughs in joyous surprise while I cringe in a cute but charming Libra kind of way, earning me my place as an adored Kiwi socialite, think Rock meets Pocahontas. He laughs at me adoringly and supportively rows my back. And we go home to our waterfront apartment, we fuck like we want to have a heart attack and die together, living that death to us part kind of love. Probably read another one. Yeah, which one? Yeah, I'll do. I'll do the Nan one. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, I'll try not to cry. Um, this poem is called "Our Nan Lets Us Smoke Inside." But only when we drink wine and play cards on the kitchen table. I feel glamorous when I drop my ash into the power shell in the middle. Our nan wears black leather pumps and dries wishbones from chicken carcasses in an empty margarine container on top of the fridge. She's not my real nan, but I have always wished she was. I used to wish I was born with her blood in my veins, her dark Waikato DNA, high cheekbones and heavy wet eyes just like my sister. Our nan met her late husband in the late 60s. She was dressed in a little mod dress, her black hair flipped. He was a cowboy with mutton chops and tan-lined legs and short cream shots shorts, who rode off to work every morning with a commercial digger for a horse butt. He'd pick us up in a station wagon on Sundays. Johnny Cash used the metronome voice making us fall asleep against the dusty window so we would stop for a fillet of fish and a strawberry milkshake for lunch and for dinner. But always my, he always picked my sister up more, right until he couldn't. At his funeral, us girls carried the mismatched flowers behind our brothers in black sunglasses. At the service, we all got up and sang, I hope you're dancing in the sky, but it was painful and flat and sounded like coughing. During the burial, nobody exhaled a word as my nan ashed out a half-sucked cigarette in the fresh sour soil. And in the car park, we all smoked back tears with another cigarette pacifier like babies numbed on a nicotine nipple. great that all three of you are read because I think that this it really does show that generosity you know like that I think is so yeah so apparent in all your work um I'm 
interested. Okay, this is a question that I've been trying to formulate, but it'll come out wrong. Um, there's, we often talk about like the leakage from real life into poetry, but I'm just wondering, does the reverse ever happen? Like, is there ever repercussions in real life from poems, or is there any kind of leakage into the real life from the the imagined work, you know, the creative work? Kira, do you, do you have anything you want to say about that? Um, yeah, I, I kind of, I think about this a lot, actually, and I think about how my relationship with language changes, like, the way I live, and particularly because I was, like, I was brought up, my dad was, like, a social worker, and he was, like, really into, like, weird positive affirmations and, like, um, guided meditations and stuff like that, and so we were, had this, like, sense instilled in us from really early on that, like, the way the language you use about yourself um, or the language you use, like, really affects the way your life feels. And I don't have anything more profound to say other than that, other than, like, I, I do really believe that, um, you know, not only does the way you write um, kind of... Or not only, you know, writing about other people and stuff um, comes into your writing, but I think that the way... Um, you write influences your relationships as well. And I don't just mean that in like a new age kind of like, this is a good thing kind of way. Like I think it can be a bad thing. I think that you can like convince yourself of things in poetry that are not true. I think that you can put a, like a really romantic spin on a bad relationship and yeah. So it's kind of no moral judgment, but I think it does. I mean, it, you can't, it can't help but fuck with your head a little bit. songs flip you back into a time. Um, it's sort of like a version of a teeny girl diary, um, but, but I'm a grown-up. Um, and I think it's always, I often write about relationships that I'm in, and I, and I reckon always, yeah, it always has a has an impact on those relationships. Um, also, I obviously write about my relationship with myself um, and I don't know, I'm, I've, I've been able to write poems that are nice. <laughs> <laughs> Not like nice about, about lovely boys sometimes, but uh, yeah, Later, um, 
not very, you're not very fucking positive affirmations, <laughs> but maybe one day, <laughs> maybe one day I'll fucking be a poetry self-help guru, um, probably not, um, I don't know what exactly I'm saying, but yes, I think it definitely, it definitely has an impact on how your life plays out, but it's also like, if you have to, if you feel like compulsion to write things, then um, uh, I don't fucking know what to <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying, but I, I do. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, you're awesome. I totally get that. Um, I was thinking. I was thinking. There's an interesting thing. Um, so I'm pointing now. That's impolite. Um, I was just thinking, like, Tay, a lot of the time you're um, sort of talking about things in the past. You know, I'm just thinking there's huh. a couple of uh, often around. I sorry. I often associate your work with some of those high school poems and stuff like that. And I'm wondering, does that like memory is a weird thing? Does does it affect how you see? The way, is it a way to kind of work out how things happen? Like, is it a way to kind of revisit them and think, oh, you know, that wasn't such a bad day, or that was, you know, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have an undergrad degree in history. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. No, no. Um, maybe I'm just like deeply traumatized by high school because they didn't give me a girl. <laughs> um, sorry, what was your question again? I just made a joke and I forgot. I was just wondering, like, this idea of sort of, I don't know, like, because. Because I have a degree in librarianship, and we talked in the when I did it back in the 1800s, we talked a lot about um, like making sense, you know, making oh. sense of the thing. And I just wonder, do you think there's any act of that happening? It seems like such an old-fashioned idea now, but you know, like, do you think that revisiting these things that have happened before, you know, like it's not sort of an, like I'm looking at this relationship right now and writing about that. It's kind of looking at things in the past. Yeah, I guess there's probably some degree of making sense, but usually if I'm writing about things in the past, it's usually just because I think the story is good. Hmm. That, I think that is what's such an interesting thing with all about this, is that, um, I don't know, I would like to ask a question, but I don't think I prepped any of you for it, but just this idea of um, shaping what's happening now. Do you know what I mean? Like this idea, the story does need to be good, doesn't it? Like, I mean, I don't know, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, well, most of my poems don't really have a a story. I don't know. I kind of t I I tend to not write things that like I like them to have a narrative flow. But I think that if I know what's going to happen in the end, it makes me lazy and it makes my poems bad. So, um, I guess like the the worry with story is that you're always like working towards a foregone conclusion. And I find that some people can do that really well, but I find that really hard. Do you have anything, Freya, about just this idea of kind of like life, you know, just this idea of shaping it? You know, like I was just thinking in the in the um, poem that you read, you know, you, you sort of use repetition, repetition, you use like sort of craft elements, you use pause and that kind of thing. So are we talking about shaping the poem or shaping life with the poem? Yeah, that sounds amazing what you've been doing. <laughs> That's how I should have asked the question. Yeah, that. Uh, um, I, I don't, I think I sometimes try to like shape my attitude towards things with poems, like uh, because uh, like I 
because I have difficulty like experiencing my emotions in real time. Um, I can kind of do a bit of bit of like figuring out what I feel like is the appropriate response to something like uh, like a, because I'm a, a not a very confrontational person in real life. Um, sometimes I'll be like. <laughs> I'm angry at this one. I'm gonna try really hard to um, to experience what it would be like to be a bear bitch. Um, but yeah, it's kind of it's like a little. Uh, I, yeah, does that make sense? Totally, totally. I was just because I was even thinking with like well, all of your poetry, like often it's coming at things from all different directions. I think. That's one of the other interesting things is that in all of your work, there's, oh God, I'd, yeah, I'll probably be wrong, but like there's kind of an authorial presence, but it definitely feels like there's experimentation with mood and, and voice, you know what I mean? Like there's modulation in that, you know, and I think, I think that that makes for a really interesting experience, you know, reading, reading this way. Um, I have this idea, I have this question, but I, I'm not sure how it'll go. Just this idea about control of information, like, I guess it's in two parts. One, do you think there's a line? Like, do you think there's a line, and do you, do you write towards that line and feel when you're over it, as far as how much information you give away? Or, like, is it an inside thing, or is it a, you know, yeah, do, can you talk about that a little bit? Kay, for instance, like, do you, do you have... Sitting here right now, if you had to answer the question, you know, I would not write about, oh, that would oh. be great, because then I have to make you tell what you wouldn't write about, but, you know, <laughs> but I just mean, like, do you think that there is, you know, like, do you ever write something and think, oh, yeah, nah, that's just for me, or, yeah? I, I, think, I, pretty, I think I pretty much do anything for a good poem. Um, I, I just, the first thing that came to my head is, like, probably, like, kids. Probably wouldn't write about like kids, <laughs> just because they know, like I don't think they can really consent or understand it. That seems some reason that seems exploitative to me. Yeah, yeah. I like kids though. So <laughs> maybe um, in terms of too much information, I think I just rely on my sense of what feels gratuitous. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think it's. I think most of when I'm writing, it comes down to taste. And just me feeling like this is getting a bit <laughs> vulgar <laughs> or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Is it the same for you, Hera? Or do you, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, to me it's the same. Like I don't really feel like it's a moral line. I feel like it's an aesthetic line. And I feel mm. like the question, what is, when is too much information too much information, is usually when it's not working in service of the poem. Yeah. But like, if, like I think, I mean, I think there are things that we all probably wouldn't write about because we feel like, you know, you can't, you can't tell other people's, you know, there would be certain people's stories that I wouldn't tell and things like that. But that's just kind of um, ethics 101, you know. And I think that uh, the hard thing is, even if you try not to offend someone, the thing that you, like, you end up, it's like that thing where you write a poem and you think, oh, God, this person's going to be, like, really upset that I've described all of this, like, hideous behaviour, but actually what they are upset about is, like, I wasn't wearing a straw hat <laughs> on that day, you know, like it's really, it's so hard to, to tell anyway. That was a real, that was a weird segue. I like straw Rewind. Hats. It's like a country and western sort of segue. 
What about you, Freya? Do you do you sometimes? I'm just thinking for me, like often when I'm writing, I'll write and I'll be in the flow, and in the and there'll be an occasion where I'll think, actually, this is a story for me. You know, yeah. like this. Yeah, I don't know. Do you? Totally. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and it is. It's partially aesthetic, I think, and it's partially like um, for me at least. Um, uh, Illustrated with an example, um, I have a poem that that my first thing, like the whole kind of reason I wanted to write the poem was um, uh, like dealing with the death of a friend. Um, and and it turned into something that like was had slight hints of of that but it but it i had to take out these these whole sections of it that were really specific about this person mainly because they just weren't good enough like they like and that's a form of disrespect i think to write badly about someone who you love um like um, uh, but also, like, I, I am, I'd be really grossed out to think that I might be, like, using my grief or, or something to, like, to, to get people on side with the poem. Like, it's, yeah, it's, it's so with that poem, it felt started to feel like it was really good for me to write and it, and it was definitely like um, yeah it was an important exercise for me but then for it going out into the public I was like yep that's that's out of that sphere because it needs to be it needs to be beautiful yeah if it's talking about this person yeah yeah I was just thinking when I was um, think when I was reading your work and everyone's work over everything. I was just thinking about how often um, I need to be really careful because sometimes um, you you guys have far more ethics than me. But sometimes I am honestly writing just to make myself look better. You know, like yeah. I'll write about a, a, a thing that's happened in the past, and I'll find myself saying, "I did not slap her in the face. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry," and walked away. You know, and I think I think that it, it's a really um, it's just a constant, like, yeah, it's just constantly in my face. And, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, it is 6.30, and it occurs to me that people might have questions in the audience. And we have, um, we can do this, like, we have a roving mic. It's Kira's mic. But, um, oh, thank you, Nanny. Oh, choice. Um, is there anyone that does have a question? You don't have to have a question, but if anyone did think that perhaps she talked too much, Oh, you were waving. That was you just about had to ask a question. No. Um, <laughs> is there anyone? Oh, here we go. I was just going to ask Kira um, if the idea of tonal honesty. I think it's a really interesting idea. Um, is that in a, in a lot of ways um, in your poetry? It makes me think of a shift in tone that occurs quite often. But also, is it self-consciousness? Is that a, a similar thing? Sorry, is what is what self-consciousness? Um, is self is being a self-conscious uh, narrator or a self-conscious voice in a poem? Is that a big part of tonal honesty? Um, I I don't know. Maybe it is. I haven't really thought about it like that. To me, like what tonal honesty is about is I I kind of 
you know when you first go and you um, are starting to write poetry for the first time and you kind of read all of the, this kind of really amazing poetry which is like sparse and heavy and, and bleak and you're kind of trying to fit your experience into that context. Um, and I kind of wrote a whole manuscript like that when I was at the IIML that never saw the light of day. Um, and, I, and at the end of it I was like, the things that I'm saying and the poems are honest, but the way in which I'm saying them has, has no emotional reality to, to my lived experiences. So for me, like, tonal honesty is about um, not only, like, honouring the facts in your life, but also the way, like, trying to capture the way that it felt to feel them through language. So that sounds, like, very weird and esoteric. But, um, yeah, it's just about trying to think... Um, I should have stopped <laughs> five <laughs> words ago. Let's pretend I did. Um, what I'd love to do, because we've got about five minutes, do you reckon you guys could all read one more poem each? Oh, yeah. Do we have anything we can do? Um, yeah. I've got, I've got this book here. If that means <laughs> I know, I, yeah, cool. Yeah. I bought it at the shop. Why? <laughs> who, who wants to start? Oh, do you want to start? Oh, yeah, ready to go. Cool. This one is a poem called Jealousy. Anytime someone I'm dating ever mentions someone they used to love in a semi-nostalgic or non-cynical way, I immediately want to drive my car headfirst into a swamp full of battery acids ruining Christmas for everyone. <laughs> it's so unreasonable to be afraid of so many sad and distant women who have escaped into the future, only occasionally looking back through their naturally thick eyelashes. When I think about the possibility the person I'm currently with has ever been romantically interested in another person ever, I feel a great self-antagonism for being the kind of woman who came afterwards, like a bad sequel with a higher budget. <laughs> oh, I feel sorry for the people I love and where it is I'm taking them because I don't think I'm good enough. I think it's okay to admit the people you love are better than you. I wouldn't date anyone who wasn't. Imagine dating someone worse than yourself on purpose. <laughs> That's the kind of fucked up thing only everyone I've ever loved would do. <laughs> Can yeah, my palms aren't there, so like, I'm trying to find mine. Oh, I've right. actually got um, I've got your palms that I printed up. Oh, I like them. Do you want them? <laughs> nah, not really. <laughs> Wait, <okay. laughs> I want them back. Um, oh, I'm not ready. Yeah, those are yours, eh? Yeah. Only if I gave you Freya, then you could read that. Oh yeah, I'd rather. Maybe, wait, should maybe I go next because um, I think her answer is going to be funny and mine's not. That's not that funny. <laughs> <laughs> not that funny. Oh, sorry. That's the subject. It has like two gags in it. Mine's got none. Okay. Oh, mine's maybe has one. If I can pull it off. <laughs> I just thought because mine's like mine's got like a somber tone and like let's leave them with that. No. Shebang. No. no. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> you'll be fine. Yeah. You're good. No. This poem is called um, Black Velvet Mini. It's in three parts. She plays Hendrix on guitar at her teen daughter's party 
You found a room full of Grigoraki cyberspace donors who recommend a remedy for her shoulders, the bones softened and often sore from the weight of religious condemnation. So she gives up the Bible verses, takes her Chanel chains off, grows wings, levitates with a light touch, plucks out all along the watchtower as quickly as she can pluck, feathers off a chicken and pluck and feed a family, manage a farm, still manage to run every morning and evening, park packs of cows and Chrysler's park, dirty farmers and their dirty sons until she is pencil thin, draws attention to herself, inspires comments from strangers like a muse, used like crumpled like a chippy packet. She ate the entire bag and laughed, forgot her sentences, remembered how it felt to have her body strummed by wind coming in from the ocean, the way the taste of wild mint reverberated like an echo in her mouth, how hunger felt like hell fires and hope felt like walking up a dead riverbed searching for a trickle. Two, she learns to eat off the land. Here's a dinner plate in denim jeans. She's 17 and starving, is clumsy with her mouth. He is topless and rides bareback, has long hair and a bone necklace. He whips up horses for her amusement. They stampede around her like a lasso. Her chest tightens. She feels like an indigenous goddess sitting on an upturned yellow bucket. She laughs and he is inspired by the way she sticks her tongue out. He comes from a line of master carvers, commits their names into a kōwhai tree, reads a honetūwhare poem, gets her underwear off, teaches her how to canter, canter as an excuse to masturbate her, is scared of her parents, her white veteran father with a fruity foreign accent, and her mother, who wears Chanel and paints her eyebrows on like an angry seagull, <laughs> ready to pick at a carcass. Her mother makes them pick fresh watercress to take back to the city and watches them weave through the stream and Levi's cut at the thighs while she hovers on the shore, just like the metallic dragonflies bothersome all summer. Her parents are thankful for the repaired economy, increased security, an inner city dwelling, and a yellow sports car to visit the East Coast in the summer. They love their lovely daughter. They call her pretty, but a worry. They say she doesn't care about stability or the sacrifices that they've made. She just wants to make love again in the stable, suck McJagger off at Woodstock, wear a black velvet mini in a beret, kiss her, her East Coast cowboy like a groupie. He chops wood and makes guitars plays piano in the sax, has a band with his cousins, won't make it very far. Can play any kind of instrument with hands like that. Overheard a girl in the town hall call him the Māori god of music. Always another girl and always another summer, explained to her by her mother who looked relieved and the flush on his daughter's skin finally wintered, although it was glacier slow. And every now and then, then still burned like a phantom limb. Got rid of her Stevie Nicks dress, replaced it with a white one and then a white one, and soon had a closet full of expensive exoskeleton satin lace pearl that never did quite fit right and made an enemy out of her body. That's quite long. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, Freya, do you want to read us a poem? Yeah, should I read like a gross one? Or a sad one. That's the one I was talking about before. That, that, one, that one always makes me cry. Do you want to cry you want or to do you want to be like... What do you guys <laughs> want? Do you want to... Gross. Gross. They're going for pool noodle. Yes, pool noodle. Um. <coughs> yeah, pool noodle. The air is thick with depression. Even, so, not that sad. It's just the first line about depression. <laughs> um, the air is thick with depression. Even 
only. Life is like aqua jogging, but without the flotation device and the implicit desire to exercise. Also, it's more suited to old men than old women. But old women do love to get exclusive about it, i.e. <laughs> stop laughing so loudly it's not even that funny. Crop tops are for girls who are thinner than you. You have to shave if you want to wear a dress like that, etc. It's all very manageable and I have no complaints. No one is ever allowed to make fun of me. No, sorry, that's wrong. No one is ever allowed to be mad at me. You can make fun of me, though, if you want. That's my kink. Oh, enable me and furnish me with false gods, such as full-fat milk, weed, and a boyfriend. Just let me get a little bit sexed up for half an hour and I'll be ready. Look at the water. It's so shiny. I want to dip myself in it like toast in the hands of a giant, ill-mannered French person. Life is like aqua-jogging in tomato soup, inexplicable and disgusting. Also, the tomato soup is actually the menstrual blood of 11-year-olds. Look at yourself. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. Oh, thank you, Hannah. And thank you, National Library. And I just, ah, every time I really, what I think is one of my favourite things about all of your writing is every time I'm laughing, I'm also crying. Is that rhyme? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a half rhyme. Ooh! Um, so, yeah, thanks, everyone, for coming out. <laughs>